Hello and welcome to A Year with the Beatles, a limited series of 12 podcasts exploring virtually every studio album by the Beatles month by month. My name is Graham Burke. On our ninth episode, we're talking about Magical Mystery Tour, Psychedelic Music, Liverpool, and much, much more. Plus, roll up, roll up, we're taking a trip with the four lads to some far-off magical places, so stick around. As with every month, here to investigate the curious case of the Beatles' discography is Rob Jones, a music critic and writer of the music blog The Delete Bin. What does this fine day bring you, Rob? Uh, well, it's November, so it's kind of gray, but I'm, I've got a sunny disposition anyway. That's good. Also with us is Jim Sangster, a writer of several books on film and television and a Liverpudlian who is about to school us on the pronunciation of Mersey. Greetings, Jim. <laughs> hey, La. Hey, hello, La. <laughs> it, indeed, you are, in fact, in Liverpool recording this right now. I am. I'm in my parental home. Uh, about a mile away from where the Beatles were founded. Oh, my goodness. So about a mile away from Walton. Oh, Crazy. cool. Were the uh, nurses selling poppies from a tray a couple of weeks ago? <laughs> Not in this weather, no. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Uh, before we do all this, we have to do the requisite recap. So here we go. Beatles Albums 12 podcast listening now. And with that oblique explanation out of the way, let's talk about this month's album, Magical Mystery Tour. Now, this is normally the part where I talk about when it was released, and and here's where it gets complicated for some people. Magical Mystery Tour was released in Britain as a double EP containing the six songs from the television film, and it came out in the UK on December 8th, 1967. But... It was also released in North America and elsewhere as a full album on December 27, 1967, featuring the songs from the TV program and several singles from late 1966 and throughout 1967. Eventually, the UK adopted it as the full-fledged album release, and the album was included in the CD releases and the remasters, and I have decided, for the purposes of my month-to-month re-listening of the Beatles, as has Applecore, to accept the wisdom of Capitol Records to use this US release as a bona fide album. And if you don't like that, start your own Beatles listening podcast. I highly recommend it. (laughs) In any event, here is everything you need to know about Magical Mystery Tour in two minutes, more or less.
Well now, Rob. Hmm, Graham. <laughs> Indeed. This album wasn't conceived of as an album, obviously, and yet the EP part of it and the singles part of it seem cohesive in that it represents the contributions of the Beatles towards a certain emerging trend in music at the time, um, which I'm, of course, talking about psychedelic music. Now, I know this is a big question, but would you be able to elucidate on where the Beatles fit in with psychedelic music, and could you please keep your answer concise? Uh, I will give it a shot. First of all, I feel like I have to walk back some statements I made uh, in... Uh in some podcasts in the past about uh, Capitol Records, and you mentioned uh, the <laughs> the wisdom of Capitol Records, which is something I never would have applied to uh, to, to them uh, in terms of Beatles releases before this. Um, this is where they really got it right. I, sh I have to say that, and I have to eat my words a little bit on Magical Mystery Tour, because as you mentioned, it is a very cohesive release, uh, and all the songs kind of kind of hang together, and it kind of plays into uh, the Beatles' uh, approach to Sgt. Pepper, which was the original idea was that they would make a, a, a record about their childhood. Uh, and Magical Mystery Tour kind of touches on that, and I'm sure Jim will have a lot to say about that. Um, but as far as, uh, as far as psychedelia goes, um, the Beatles had been experimenting with uh, LSD, and uh, this, this is sort of a... Uh, this is the, the sort of British equivalent to, to psychedelia because there was also American psychedelia, which is, uh, you know, is, is a little bit different. It's a little sort of edgier and uh, kind of darker. Uh, whereas with the, the kind of psychedelic music that the Beatles were making was very sort of childlike and very innocent and kind of Lewis Carroll. And it had a kind of back to the garden type of feel to it, you know. So a lot that and that that sort of lightness of tone kind of plays into uh, where how the Beatles approach psychedelic music in general, which I mean that a lot of the goals are the same, you know, on both in both uh, spaces, you know, in terms of you know expanding your mind and and all that kind of stuff, uh, and going into sort of more esoteric kind of subject matter. But with the Beatles, this is all happy and joyous, and uh, and we'll see that we saw that with uh, with Sergeant Pepper certainly, but. There's more of that here, and uh, that's what kind of makes it attractive. Now, Jim, Rob's already touched on this, but I think it's safe to say that the other trend that's reflected in both the EP and the singles and the, and the album uh, as a whole is that it's very much a piece about Liverpool in many respects, and it's not just in the obvious examples of Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane. Would you say that's the case? Absolutely. Um, in fact, I'd contend that um, Sgt. Pepper might be the most famous concept album 
But I think this is a really cohesive idea, which is ironic considering that it, it absolutely wasn't how it was built. <clears throat> the fact that um, Capital intervened and said, oh, we want these songs in there as well, and just happened to make this the most Liverpool album uh, they ever did. Uh, and it's, it's in very subtle ways as well. I mean, um, George Harrison was always the, the singer who retained his, his Scouse accent a bit more. But you can really hear it in, in the way he says the instead of there in, in some of the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you've got um, Hey La, Hey Hello La, which I alluded to earlier. Hey, la, hey, la. la is short for lad, which is a, a Scouse colloquialism. For, you know, you might say to another man, all right, La. Hey La, Hey Hello La isn't a very obvious Scouseism if, if you don't come from Liverpool. There are so many little things. We'll, we'll talk about them later when we get to the um, the movie. But there are so many things that I think if you're not from Liverpool, or certainly if you're not from the northwest of England, you might miss why this is a brilliant album. It's interesting because outside the bubble, if you live in North America, for example, you know, I, I think there was this kind of prevailing assumption that because of their provincial accents, you know, the, the Beatles are working class. But aside from Ringo, they're actually quite suburban. They're very. I mean, if you ever saw um, where John Lennon grew up, and funnily enough, when um, Rob lived in the UK, we went to Liverpool and I showed my, my dad showed him around all, all the houses that That's were right. near to where I grew up. And uh, John Lennon's house was massive. <laughs> he was in a really, really nice area. It actually reminded me of where I grew up, uh, that, that area of, of Liverpool. It, it, uh, it was quite surprising. And how middle class am I? Are you posh, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> it's that working class Canadian accent you've got, Rob. Um, it, fools, yeah. it fools us every time. <laughs> I, I hadn't thought about the connection that, you know, Liverpool would be kind of like o- Oakville in, in, a, in, a, in a Canadian context. Yeah, that's, that must be it. I think we should focus a little bit on the two overtly Liverpool songs on the album, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane. They're both really incredible songs, but for me, it's how it's funny how they use similar subject matter, but approach it in totally different ways in terms of not only the composition of the song, but also the lyrics. I mean, with with Paul, it's total nostalgia. It's John, it's totally interiorized. It's like one is trying to look back on the past with this kind of wistful kind of look, whereas the other is trying to re- kind of re-experience the sense of memory of it, if you will. Well, I I, I agree that they're uh, they they both have a sort of a nostalgic air about them. Um, but I also agree that uh, that they were coming from completely different headspaces. Uh, in terms of Strawberry Fields Forever, um, I, I, I feel like I've spent my life trying to figure out what that song is actually about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it, it mentions uh, uh, Strawberry Fields, which is an, an orphanage. I, Jim will talk about that in more detail. Um, but it, it's a location in Liverpool. But I don't think that the song is about being in Liverpool. I think the song is about being famous uh, and then thinking about uh, one's identity to where one comes from. I, I I really think that that's what Strawberry Fields Forever is trying to say. No one I think is in my tree. Like no one no one knows what it feels like to be me. Um, so there's lots of lots of sort of uh, uh, existentialism in there. You know, there's lots of kind of a uh, very deep thought about identity and 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 direction and things like that. It's it's a very John Lennon song in that respect. In that it's about him and where his headspace is, 
Whereas with with Penny Lane, it is that pure nostalgia, it is, is that pure place that we hold in our heads about the place we come from, and how you know how we celebrate that, and all the all the little simple pleasures that that sort of make up our memories about the the town that we we come from. So. One is sort of dark and uh, exploring a sort of an interior kind of narrative, whereas the other one is, is just telling, telling a story about what's important uh, to the person telling that story. In, in many ways, you know, one is a very John song and the other is a very Paul song, and, and we're, kind of, we're kind of seeing two different takes on it. And with those two songs being on the same album, we really get a sense of balance between those two things. You know, and that's part part of what makes this such a such a uh, accidentally great cohesive record all around. It's funny for me how it, that balance is achieved even musically because you have Strawberry Fields Forever, which is famously from two separate takes of the same song. That you know, one mm -hmm. slightly sped up to go accommodate the other, and 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 also to weird kind of mushing and fusion between the two that George Martin did to make it work. Whereas Penny Lane is just pure lyricism. It's it's it reflects actually something we didn't actually mention this in the in the Sergeant Pepper episode, which I thought was worth pointing out, which is that during the off season, when <laughs> between making Revolver and uh, and Sergeant Pepper's, uh, Paul McCartney and George Martin did uh, a soundtrack for a film, The Family Way, and so That's you, right. can, yeah. you can see that he's you know that. Paul is branching out into film music, and I think you can sort of you can sort of see that kind of filmic kind of approach to uh, to, to Penny Lane for sure. It, you know, even his use of the piccolo trumpet is is a very kind of I want I want to kind of evoke that feeling. For me, it, I think is I think the film music experience really informs a lot of his stuff in 1967 and 1968. For sure, yeah. Jim, I mean, you've actually been to Penny Lane, and you no doubt know way more about Strawberry Fields than I do. So, <laughs> I've been to Penny Lane today. Yeah, um, it's it's strange as well because um, I mean, you talk about the two different styles. I, I think that uh, Strawberry Fields Forever sums up John Lennon, where he's always singing about himself. He's always singing about his own point of view and his own worldview. Paul McCartney tends to be a bit more of a pleaser, and he, he brings us uh, scenarios. He introduces us to little um, vignettes in, into different lives. Um, I think one of the greatest influences on the Beatles with these two particular songs as well is the comedian Ken Dodd, who a lot of people outside the UK wouldn't know, but he was famous for his book teeth and his mad crazy hair, and he was the most successful single um, solo British artist of the 1960s. Uh, singing these really maudlin hits, really, really sort of maudlin, um, sentimental songs. Memories of a love you never And, and then, then he's, in his comedy, he creates these strange worlds which are actually based in a real place. 
um, Naughty Ash. You just gotta order an extra pint of milk, Clint. You just gotta. I can't do it, baby. <laughs> There's some things a man just can't do. And I can't order that extra pint of milk. I just can't. Don't talk like that, Clint. You scare me when you talk like that. Okay, baby. Okay, baby. I'll order an extra pint of milk. You can't order an extra pint of milk, Clint. You just can't. I just gotta order it, I tell you. I just gotta. Which sounds fantastical, but it's a real place. And likewise, Strawberry Fields uh, or Strawberry Field. I mean, if I sort of paint a, 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 ge- a geographical image of, of these two songs together. So Penny Lane is a, is a side road where there used to be a pub called the Fire Station uh, about 20 years ago. Uh, I think it was probably named after the song. But that was a terminus for a lot of the, the tram routes when they were children and then the bus routes many, many years later. Um, and at the centre of that is a roundabout. And that leads off in one direction towards Church Road, which on the corner of which is a bank and a, a barbershop. If you go um, further south along, uh, I think it's towards, well, in, into Allerton and Mossley Hill, there is the fire station. And then if you go off in another direction, you go towards Menlove Avenue, the gloriously named Menlove Avenue, which is where John Lennon grew up. <laughs> and uh, just round the corner from that is the, the, the strawberry field. And it's all within... 15 minute walk of each other and it's it's very very close and the fact that they grew up very close together anyway is uh probably how they they kind of had the same kind of uh, experience growing up and also from john lennon's house if you go in another 10 minutes south you get to walton and that's where paul and john met at that famous um church fate and if you go another 15 minutes south again you get to where i am right now <laughs> The thing with Penny Lane is that it it has this I, I it has a point of view that I find f- really fascinating. Like he he throws in all these interesting references to not just childhood but but adolescence. Um, I mean I think Jim, you were the one who pointed out to me that that full of fish and finger pie is actually quite a filthy phrase. Oh, it's the filthiest filthiest reference ever. Um, without going too graphic, <laughs> actually, how how graphic can we go? Not very. Uh, it's a term for heavy petting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, of an evening when when someone's got when a couple have gone for a long walk because there was nothing else to do in those days, and they'd end up at the bus uh, shelter, which is in the middle of the the roundabout, and maybe they'd have a bit of a kiss and a cuddle, and it's not quite all the way, <laughs> but it's sort of between first and second base. I am blushing. I'm blushing hugely. <laughs> I should also. <laughs> I just want to mention one other thing about Strawberry Fields is the fact that I've, I pulled up, um, you know, Paul's pronunciation, uh, which is very scouse. But the fact that John Lennon sings Strawberry Fields forever. Yeah, that's right. And that's right. A, the most scouse thing of all as well. Um, it, it's almost as if he's thinking back to his childhood and he's got this slightly affected scouse accent by the time we get to know him. But um, then it suddenly comes back raw in his head and he's going Strawberry Fields forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of shades of a polythene pan, which we'd see later on, which is which yeah. is probably the most scouse he's ever he ever gets, right? Oh, lovely Rita, Rita, Meter maid. Yeah. <laughs> what, Rob, what are some of the songs you love from this album? Uh, I've always loved, uh, besides uh, "Strawberry Fields Forever" and "Penny Lane," which we talked about quite a lot. I've always loved uh, "Hello Goodbye," because again, it's it's Paul McCartney being Paul McCartney. I, I think Jim mentioned that. Uh, that uh, he was kind of a pleaser uh, in terms of his personality, but but and and that certainly soaks through into his songs, and that's probably one of the most up Beatles songs ever written, 
uh, and I, I just love the uh, I love the sort of optimism that's beaming from it. And it sounds like it's a breakup song to me. So it's it's like one of the most optimistic up breakup songs like you know ever ever written sort of thing. You say yes. It literally is a breakup song. He just split up with Jane Asher, hasn't he? If there's anyone who could possibly do an upbeat, up-tempo breakup song, it's Paul. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I just love all the chords in it. And, and you know, a lot of unexpected kind of... Uh, it seems like a really simple, and it certainly is a very accessible pop song, but it's got some really interesting, interesting chord progressions in it that just, you know, just light me up whenever I hear it. It pays attention to mood too. That's that's the that's one of the big things in that song. I, I mean, for me, I mean, I have to say in passing, I love Magical Mystery Tour. The song, uh, I am going to be heretical and say that I think I even prefer it to the introduction to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Um, mm. because... I think it has a real verve to it. I just, it's just that, it's that, it's that opening fanfare. But my favorite song in the album is uh, I'm the Walrus. And, and, you know, I mean, there's all the things Howard Goodall said about the nine chord changes at the start, but for me, it's the lyrics. It's stuff like... I have no idea what this means, and in some ways, it's like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. It repelled me when I was younger, but now I just listen to these words just sort of wash over me. Jim, what did you like? I was torn, actually, between I'm the Walrus and uh, Hello Goodbye, so there you go. We're kind of in agreement. I I mean, as, as I think a lot of uh, English graduates tend to go to the things that you can analyze to death and i'm the walrus has got so many references in <laughs> that uh you know and also the fact that it again it's got this kind of deep-rooted liverpudlian attitude to it because um scousers hate anything that's a bit poncy a bit pretentious and so they'll always try and undermine it so when john lennon found out that um university students were studying his lyrics he went rise i'll show you <laughs> and and came up with a lyric that was impenetrable and yet there are so many different references in it that you, you can decipher, even down to the, um, you know, the, the sort of the, the rhythm of it, da, 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 which is a bit like a, a British police car. I mention that just because I don't think they've ever used the word policeman in a lyric until this point, and then they do it two or three times in one song. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain, well, some fans analyse the, the line about pretty little pre- policemen in a row as a reference to the death of John's mum. Because she was um, killed in a in a in a car accident, uh, the car was driven by a learner driver um, who was a policeman who shouldn't have been behind the wheel unaccompanied, and he got off with it. Um, so you know, the, the, there's a little bit of thing there, but the fact that you've got that dida dida, which is running all the way through the song, 
Um, on, on a slightly more cheery note, yeah, you've also got, I, never, I never thought um, of that. <laughs> yeah, it's you've also got a lot of the the, the childhood nostalgia. So you've got um, the disgusting, disgusting childhood playground song. Hi, this is Graham. Um, I'm interrupting the proceedings to warn you that the verse Jim is about to recite is really, really gross. Like it sticks in your head and grosses you out for weeks afterward kind of gross. So if you don't like that sort of thing, I would really advise that you skip ahead about 15 seconds or so and that you do it about now. Childhood playground song. Uh, yellow matter custard, green snot pie, all mixed together with a dead dog's eye. Slap it on a butty, which is a scousism for um, sandwich. Ten foot thick, wash it all down with a cup of cold sick. Um, <laughs> so that, that line of uh, yellow matter custard is a, just a reference to that. And then, of course, umpa, umpa, stick it up your jumper. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there are cleverer things. You know, the fact that they were they were just mistuning a radio and seeing what noise they could create, and you happened to stumble across um, the third programme, which is basically for people who feel they're already educated. And uh, you get a little blast of Shakespeare's King Lear in there. So uh, Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's just a massive... what that was. I've been trying to figure that out for yeah. days. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I can give you the reference if you like. I looked it up. <laughs> I'm a swat. It's uh, Act 4, Scene 6. <laughs> L- listen to this. Oh, my. As well as the roots from Liverpool, you've also got the fact that they were very much a part of the London scene at the time as well. So, you know, you've got the Lewis Carroll reference to the walrus, but the Eggman is mm-hmm. apparently Eric Burden, lead singer of the Animals. Um, depending on which version of the song, uh, the, the story you hear, is uh, it's either he cracked an egg on a woman or an, a woman cracked an egg on him before they, they did special cuddles. Uh-huh. Uh, and John Lennon nicknamed him the Eggman ever since. Nice. <laughs> God. Okay. <laughs> but with with all this silliness, I'd I'd, I'd say uh, you know the, the the importance is that he's just met Yoko Ono as well, and mm. you know this 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 Liverpudlian um, jokey side where everything has to be undermined and if, if anything's pretentious, it's got to be popped. Mm-hmm. And then he meets a woman who teaches him that you can appreciate the most pretentious nonsense <laughs> and actually find yeah. the art in it and, and discover <laughs> what it's all about. You know, So this is the turning point where he stops taking the piss, basically. Brings to my next question nicely, which is that this album, both as an album and an EP, it, it marks a very inward shift from Sgt. Pepper. And they're they're looking back on their past, they're looking back on, they're looking at the state they're in. And they're also kind of testing out what a kind of music they can write. And I guess my question, Rob, is, does this introspection really define the later phase of the Beatles? Uh, I think it defines uh, uh, each member of the band taking their own path. Um, whereas before, um, you know, in the earlier days, they would get together in the studio and they would have a song and they would kind of work it out between them, you know, while they were there. Whereas I think at this point in time, uh, each composer had a distinct idea of what they wanted the song to sound like. And uh, they kind of took it from there. So it was a bit more individual. They're kind of moving a little bit more uh, into an individual space, like even at this point in time. And we'd certainly see that on the White Album. Uh, that 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 it's sort of the kind of the logical conclusion on the White Album coming up. But it kind of starts here. So their their approach to making records, I think, came quite different. And and a lot of that had to do with the fact that they didn't have to worry about an arrangement on stage and we talked about that during 
uh, revolver and with uh, Sergeant Pepper. Um, but they're kind of doubling down on that, I think, here on this record and on all the songs. And it's evident. Um, and the songs are great as a result, but it, it's, I think that explains the, the sort of shift that we hear sonically uh, in, in Beatles records. Well, I think that's a nice place to close our conversation on Magical Mystery Tour. If you have anything you'd like to say, you can send us an email at beatles at gemgeekerrarebug.com or visit our website at ayearwiththebeatles.podbean.com. And now, as we do every episode, we're going to have what we call extra credit homework, where we listen to or watch some Beatles material that complements the album we're listening to. And this month, we've been watching this. Good morning, said Richard. Good afternoon, sir, said the courier. They were late. Hello, Flo. You all right, girl? We'll sit here. Yes, I'll have the window seat. All right, so you'll have the window seat. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to Magical Mystery Tour. I am your courier, Jolly Jimmy Johnson. All my friends call me Jolly Jimmy, and you are all my friends. Over here is your hostess, that lovely, delightful, delectable Wendy Winters. <laughs> lovely, lovely. And over here, our driver for the trip, that wonderful driver, we hope. <laughs> Elf! Off you go, Elf! There we go now, splendid. Fasten your safety belts, please. Away, away, away we go! That's a clip from the 1967 made-for-television film Magical Mystery Tour, which was written and directed by the Beatles. Now, Jim, as we've said, one of your areas of expertise is British television, so my question is, what on earth did audiences watching this on Boxing Day 1967 during the Christmas season when people watch television more than any other time of the year in Britain make of this? <laughs> you, you're watching this and you're thinking, well, they've made the most colorful thing. If you watch, watch it nowadays, it's the most colorful thing ever for an audience that have all got black and white TVs. How dumb is that? And and it's it's deliberately surreal. And you have to remind yourself, this went out, well, this was actually completed a full month before the, the, the Prisoner started airing. So no one had seen that either. It's a good three years before Monty Python really takes a grip. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's amazing that... Uh, they could really be the sort of at the at the vanguard of surrealist TV, and the audience hated it. <laughs> well, indeed, uh, it's in fact safe to say that the letters to the Radio Times and the reviews in the newspapers were um, interesting. <laughs> and as they say on Blue Peter, uh, here's something Jim prepared earlier. Uh, here's a selection of reviews of Magical Mystery Tour from 1967. James Greed of the Evening News. Take your pick from the words rubbish, piffle, chaotic, flop, tasteless, nonsense, empty, and appalling. I watched it, and there was precious little magic, and the only mystery was how the BBC ever came to buy it. Radio Times, 11th of January 68 edition. The Beatles film. I should like to take the opportunity to thank BBC One for televising the Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour. My family and I sat enthralled by 50 minutes of fantasy and piquant humour. The marathon race was hilarious and many of the other scenes were very beautiful. How I wish we had colour television, but must console myself that I can see it again on BBC Two. Thank you for all the entertainment this Christmas. Mrs Margaret Grubb, London, N22. 
may I award an Oscar for the biggest load of pure, unadulterated tripe to the Beatles for their magical mystery tour. It was such utter rubbish that it took great control on my part not to ring the BBC. I could not even fathom what it was all about. J. Madison, Ilford, Essex. You can practically hear the monocle coming off. <laughs> well, there's That's right. <laughs> now, Jim, you have a decidedly positive reaction to this, uh, To this, so we're going to come to you later. Um, <laughs> Very wise. So, Rob, why don't we start with you? What, was this the first time you had seen Magical Mystery It was. Mystery? It was the first time I've seen it. I, I've seen, like, throughout my life, and as a Beatles fan, uh, I've seen clips of it and, you know, um, bits and pieces here and there, but I've never seen it from end to end. So it was quite a it was quite a revelation, um, and uh, yeah, uh, to to me watching the thing, I I kind of had it in my mind that you know I am not a nineteen I don't have a nineteen sixty seven brain, so you know I'm processing this different because I have you know cultural references like Jim mentioned Monty Python and the Prisoner and that type of stuff, so I have a kind of frame of reference for this type of thing. But uh, even with that, I couldn't help but think, wow, it's like 1967 just threw up all over me. <laughs> ba ba basic basically, that, that, that was my sort of guttural reptilian brain kind of reaction to this, move, or to this uh, television show. It's so true. <laughs> it was the first time I had seen it, too. And, and there's a part of me that kind of went, do I really want to see this because because it could I, I love the album so do I forever want this sort of but I did I did watch it and my reaction was was kind of similar to the Christmas albums that when we when we reviewed them with Joanna Ashwan them back uh, back from 1967 and 1968 and you just feel like you know the the assumption is is that we're in on a joke uh, with them when in fact we're probably at the far, at least for me anyways I'm at the farthest place on earth from that joke. Um, you could actually open up a world atlas, put me on one side, and then put put the joke on the other side, and you'd have a pretty good of how far away I am from that joke. I mean, for me. Uh, uh, the comparisons I'm making are not necessarily to Python or even The Prisoner. My comparison is to Head, which is yes. the movie The Monkeys made a year later. It's similarly experimental. It's similarly off book. It's blowing up preconceived notions of them. But it also has Bob Ravelson directing. Yeah, <laughs> it actually has an actual director who's not the not the band, and yeah. it has and it has a, they're a more of a focus and more of a satirical tone. And 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 I'm yeah. and the fun, I'm willing to go with something like head but this one i just really found it i really struggled to go with it and i it, i should say i should say that that it did have uh, bits and pieces in there that i thought were really well done like i i really enjoyed the the relationship for instance between uh, ringo and his his auntie uh and i, yeah, I kind of yeah. wish they'd developed that a bit more say with a script or something along those lines because <laughs> because the, the the two actors had some real rapport like ringo and the the actor who played uh, uh auntie jesse um, was uh, they they really had rapport, you know, and and I quite like that. I like the fool on the hill piece, you know. I thought that was really well done. Although there's bits and pieces in there where they they just hang on on a frame a little too long. So you know, again, that could have done with an editor, for instance, you know, things yes. like that. But <laughs> it had its moments. But I can also see why people hated it so much, um, because one of the threads that run through this and through head for that matter 
is that you know if you don't get this, then it means you're not turned on. Uh, there's 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 that sort of aspect of of that in there, and that that comes down to naivete, I think, a lot of the time on the part of of the filmmakers. But you know, look looking at that with all the frames of reference that that I have now. Um, I can definitely see that thread running through it, and that that really hurts it. It doesn't it doesn't really welcome uh, welcome an audience in as much, um, and uh, as much as Hard Day's Night did, for instance. You know, those, those it's hard to compare those two things. I know, but but uh, you know that 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 was another thing I kind of picked up after I after I cleaned off all the nineteen sixty seven vomit off, off yeah, me. I, yeah, exactly. I understand. <laughs> Well, we've kind of said our piece here, so it's now time for Jim Sangster, noted wit and bon vivant, to offer his spirited defense. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, it is a mess. But, okay, I was very kind to Yoko Ono five minutes ago, so I'm going to be kind to them all right now. Um, Brian Epstein's just died, and they're all in shock. They're all absolutely traumatized, and they don't, they're, they're completely directionless. And it's Paul who drags them all together and says, let's do something. So they'd already started a kind of album recording earlier on the year, but they got back together and finished the job. And, you know, the, the fact that the album is a bit of a mess because it had other people contributing to add songs to it. And this is a bit of a mess because it's just a load of people going, let's just have a bit of fun and cheer ourselves up. But it's only when you watch the, the finished film, I think, that you understand the entire concept uh, or not as the case may be. Again, growing up in the, in the north of England, this scenario is really familiar to me. The idea of a, a, mag well, a mystery tour is a bit of a con. So basically what a mystery tour was is your family and your neighbours would all rent a coach and then you'd all go on a mystery tour, which is basically to a pub in North Wales or in Cheshire, and then everyone would pile out of the, the, uh, the coach. They'd have their first five pints while the kids were playing on a field and then they'd all get back on the coach at closing time and drive around until the pubs open again. Um, you, you see little elements of what that would have been like, like with John Lennon playing the, uh, the whoops Charlie game with the little girl. They all pile off the coach and they're doing sort of church fate games like tug of war and a sack mm -hmm. race and priest playing blind man's buff and wrestling dwarves, yeah. <laughs> you know? And then, when they're actually on the coach and Ringo starts noticing all the other cars, it's a bit like a game that I remember my uncle playing with me and my cousins when um, he'd imagine that we're all in a race and then you'd notice that another coach has pulled ahead of you and, oh, where are they going? And a car has just um, got in front of you and then we've beaten them and we've taken the lead and it, it's all in the imagination. It's, um, I don't think it's a concept that travels, really. But again, with the nostalgia, you know, I grew up in the 70s, which means I pretty much grew up in the 40s and 50s mm -hmm. as well because my, my relatives are all of that age. So um, all the way through, you've got this, this running theme of things that you might have seen on one of those tedious <laughs> <laughs> The only magical thing is, that, I mean, right at the beginning, you get a, a very magical reference with the, uh, the Magical Mystery Tour when they say, roll up, roll up which is one of the most blatant drug references uh, <laughs> since, I don't know, Ease Are Good in Ebenezer Good by The Shaman. Most of the songs have what we now call music videos attached, but they're very different from the sort of romps that Dick Lester did in Help and Hard Day's Night. They're much more experimental. Um, but uh, do, you have any, do you have any favorites, Rob, of those? Oh, I Am the Walrus. That's, that's the winner for me. Uh, I, I really, 
I love all the weirdness. I love all the costumes. Uh, Jim mentioned the colorfulness uh, of, of, of this special in general. And I think that's the most colorful of the, of the, of the color. Um, and it really is a shame that that was in, uh, in black and white, you know, because it just, it just leaps off the, off the screen. That, that's clearly the, the best one, in my, in my opinion. Again, I, I do love I'm the Walrus. I love the fact that they, they don't even mind. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, it's quite a, a, a forward-thinking video when you look at it. You know, It's the sort of thing that Oasis would have... I'm actually, what am I saying? Oasis did do it. Um, <laughs> they did all of the Beatles in, in some form or other. Um, I think when I'm watching the, the movie, I suddenly appreciate Your Mother Should Know because it's the most traditional variety segment. You know, again, reminding ourselves that this went out in the Christmas period when it's got the largest TV audience of the year. And it's, it's sandwiched between other variety shows. And suddenly you've got Paul McCartney taking the, the lead on a big variety number, which is a hugely nostalgic thing. Again, you know, songs your mother would know. My, my favorite's Blue Jay Way, which is which is apparently directed by Ringo and is actually really great. I, I, I think it's I think it really fits the song in an interesting way. A lot of I mean, aside from my and the Walrus, I'm not a huge fan of of. Uh, of a lot of, of a lot of the videos here. I mean, uh, Fool on the Hill is just literally Paul waving his arms in in various dramatic poses as the camera manages to pull in from him from a different angle. It's not particularly interesting, but I, he, I love Blue Jay Way. I love I love the visual of you know him playing the song with just all the piano keys kind of marked in chalk on the ground. I thought that was really cool, and I and and it it really kind of got the kind of vibe of the song. So it was it was really it was really really great. So, what are your favorite scenes? Again, Ivor Cutler. Ivor Cutler is is beautiful. You know the uh, Mister Buster Blood Vessel <laughs> when he confesses his love to Auntie yes. Jess. Don't interrupt. You bring out my... I... love you! And they do that dreamy orchestrated version of all my I know, I know. Um, which which I, th I think was cut on the first screening of it. Apparently it was cut because they thought it was patronizing to old people, but I think it's so charming. Jess is the best thing in it, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, like I said like, earlier, I, I really think that the, that she had a real rapport with uh, with Ringo, and I wish they'd sort of thought that through a little bit more. Because there's there's actually one scene where uh, where she's kind of uh, sniping at him, and then he kind of loses his, his mind a little bit and sort of starts yelling, and then they burst out laughing. Shut up, Jimmy! I've had enough of it! I can't stand it anymore! I'm getting off! Off! Don't get historical! It's like it's like a they it's like they used the wrong take, you know? And <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh it would have been great if they they you know they sort of mapped that that out a little bit more, you know. It it But then you've also got the Aunt Jessie's food nightmare, which is incredibly cruel, so of course it was directed by John. Um, there were loads of complaints about how tasteless it was with uh, John playing a sadistic waiter who you don't even recognise for most of it. All this mud in 45 minutes. I can hardly get my breath. It's in take, Jesse, not out. I am, I am. I am already. Three times this week already. For goodness sake, Jesse, sit down. Remember. 
while one of their comedy heroes, Ivor Cutler, eats a light salad. And I'm sure it must have inspired the Pythons to come up with Mr. Okay. Clearside. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then, of course, at the very end of it, when 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 you got them all piled onto the bus, and that at this point in a real mystery tour, they would be steaming drunk. <laughs> and of course, someone starts someone starts singing a song. And Lennon starts doing no business like show business. And then they just have a bit of a, a big sing-along, which is how most of these things would actually finish in, in, in the real world. <laughs> that's, that's one of the frustrating things about this. You know, like it, it, had, it had potential if, if only, you know, they'd sat down with a director and a, and a writer and, and they, you know, they'd done it, they'd done it properly. You know, hmm. Jim already mentioned what I what I liked most. That was the scene where uh, John is playing with little Nicola on the bus. Jolly, 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 whoops, jolly, whoops, jolly, 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 jolly. Can you do that one? Two, no. <laughs> yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. I've got a present for you. Do you know what it is? No. Have a guess. No. Go on, have a guess. No. Have a guess. No. Have a guess. No. <laughs> Well, you're going to get it anyway. And I like it precisely because it is just not even in the artifice of the whole thing. It is just literally the most famous man in the world playing a game on a bus with a four-year-old. And it's really adorable. Yeah, it is. It, <laughs> that is, yeah, yeah. And and it's just so natural. And you see George just sort of there politely going on with it. Oh, yeah, whatever. Can we just, you know, and when are we getting to the next shoot? And it, it, it's one of those weird moments where it just sort of takes on this documentary feel. We've talked about this, but this seems like, you know, a scene from the divorce between the Brian Epstein version of the Beatles and what they were now. Um, I mean, Shannon Dohar talked about the fractures between the band. You could see it help and you can sort of see it now more in complete form. But this is what puzzles me. I mean, they're still doing like films like this together. They're still doing things like Apple Core together. Uh, they're still making albums together. I don't understand. Like, they're clearly drifting apart. But what, Rob, do you think is keeping these guys together at this point? You know, I really think, I hope this is not going to sound really cynical, um, because I, I don't attach any cynicism at all to the Beatles, you know, in my head. Um, but I, I honestly think that momentum had a lot to do with this. Just, just plain old career momentum. Uh, and the fact that, you know, when these guys got together to form the Beatles, they were, they were sort of, you know, just in, into their 20s. And, you know, Harrison was a teenager, you know what I mean? And I think, I think when all the upheaval happened, when uh, when Brian Epstein died, when they had a horrendous time with touring, particularly in uh, in 1966, um, they kind of had to rewrite the rule book, uh, and uh, you know, and they did that together. But by this time, I think um, after all that was said and done, it was just pure momentum. Just we got to keep going, guys, because you know, this is what this is what we do, and this is who we are. And it wouldn't take uh, too long for them to realize that, well, you know, I don't, I don't have to do this anymore if I don't want to. Um, but at this point in time, I think it was sheer momentum. I mean, do you, I, I was wondering, you know, Jim, do you think it's maybe part of that, but also what you pointed out when you pointed out the sort of geography of how close John and, John and Paul grew up together and even George? They sort of have a commonality of, you know, where they were from. Uh, did that, do you think that had any kind of effect on their own internal gravity? It probably did. I mean, it's, you know, you have friends that you, you stay with, uh, you know, through childhood and then into your teens and 20s, and then you do naturally drift apart. And it's, it's always a bit shocking when we see people do that in the, in the public eye. 
But uh, I mean, again, I'd say that this is the point when they're looking for someone to give them a reason to stay together. And Yoko Ono is always blamed for splitting them up. But I think she was the one who said, no, carry on working, keep working and, you know, stay together. I think I think the wives uh, collectively were pushing them all in the right direction. And it was just they got a bit bored of it. Well, you know, you've got to look at the um, what they were doing. I mean, you're saying you know, downtime. You know, for a band who were constantly recording and constantly working and, you know, they finally given up touring so they got more time to do stuff. And you look at the year in particular where uh, John and his friend Magic Alex tried to spend, uh, they spent a month trying to buy a Greek island. Um, the, band, the band signed the legalised cannabis petition. Uh, George and Patty went on a holiday to LA and stayed on Blue Jay Way. And um, obviously they had the, the Maharishi thing and um, that went on for a few months. Uh, in fact, it was still going on at the time of, of this, and I think it, it lasted well into the next year. And then right in the middle of it, you know, obviously, Brian dying. Oh, and by the way, they, they started doing a thing called Apple Music That's together. <laughs> you know? And, and jo- John recorded a film. <laughs> you know? they were for, for a band who were between albums, they were really busy. And these guys are, like, between the ages of 26 and 27 years old at the time? Oh, it's depressing, isn't it? I feel like such an <laughs> you know, underachiever. I mean, Bri- Brian died age 32 and he was the old man looking after them. You know. I'm, I'm considerably, I think we're all considerably yeah, older than that. Man. It's, it's uh, yeah. Our best days. Yeah, behind, well. Guys. Oh, well, we had our run. We had our chance to make a crazy uh, uh, boxing yeah. day special and we blew it. So. And now we're just recording a Beatles podcast. That's it. And then on that bombshell, <laughs> that's all the time we have. <laughs> we'll be back sooner than you might think with a discussion of the Beatles' 10th album from 1968, The Beatles, better known as White Album. That's next time on A Year with the Beatles. In the meantime, thank you, Rob Jones and Jim Sangster. Thank you, guys. Thank you all. I'm Graham Burke. We'll see you next time. Show, show, show.